Today I will be reading and continuing to be preaching from the book of Acts in chapter 9. And I'm reading for you today Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 19 through 25. And I will start with the second half of verse 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. For some days he, who saw, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man, or is this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he has he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall lowering him in a basket. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that this word is more than just a narrative of events, that containing in these words are the power of salvation. It is history. It is true. But Father, we know that even now you desire for us to dwell and chew upon these words, to let them sink into our hearts so that it may manifest fruits of faithfulness and proclamation of your son's name. So Father, I pray that this day that these words would sink into our hearts, that these words would continue to transform us and that we would produce good fruit of proclamation and praise and faithfulness in following your Son. We ask this thing, these things in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. As I've hinted in prayer and in proclamation, these are not just the accounts of history. These are not just records for your knowledge or for some kind of novel amusement to know that these things happened. The authorship and the work of this is ultimately from the Holy Spirit, but if you know that there is a particular writer that God inspired to write this, and you know that there's particular styles in his personality and in his gifts and abilities, you begin to understand that he is laying out for us a narrative for a purpose. There's a purpose in this particular narrative. We know through other scriptures that there are things that are not even recorded for us, that there are more things that Jesus did, even while he was here on this earth, that the books of all in the world could not contain what he had accomplished. That these things that have been transferred to us today, here in this particular book, in this particular passage of this particular chapter, has a particular purpose for his people in building up their faith. So I'm going to take some time in this passage 
I was just going to preach on this today and then move on to the next section. But the more that I studied this particular section, I believe that some of the foundation substance of who we are as a church is found here as we go from the conversion of Saul to his very first ministry of proclamation that this is the bedrock. That what he is doing here not only matches a theme that Luke highlights in Luke 4 or in other places throughout Scripture, but it is communicating to us what happened, but also what we are to do. So in a sense, I want you to look at this as these are historical events, but these are moments of events that accomplished the building of the church. And then lastly, these are thematic marching orders for how we should think about the church, how we should equip ourselves, how we should posture ourselves, and how we should proclaim the gospel ourselves in things that we should expect as we minister as God's people, as we minister as God's church, and as we minister in this age, inside of this narrative are nuggets of lessons and principles that we need to have with us. As I studied this more and more, I started seeing some parallels with something that I heard about even in the founding of our church as I was reading different books, different missionaries and and different pastors. Somewhere in that study, I discovered, I think it was through Francis Chan, that when he was ministering with those in China, he discovered that the Chinese underground church have come up with five pillars of the church, five things to be focused on in the furthering of the church. And they're all here in this little narrative about Saul, the beginning of Saul's ministry. Does anybody remember those, those five pillars? Because I preached on this four years ago, maybe even close to the same time as we are now four years ago. And Jennifer, you don't get to answer, you know, we we're talking this morning. But does anybody remember what those five pillars are, or some of the five pillars uh, and this is for the modern Chinese underground church. These pastors, when they are discipling converts or encouraging their current Christians in their church, they put these things in front of them as things to remember of how to identify with their work in the, in the Christian church this day. Rachel wants to guess, but she's afraid she's going to be wrong. And she's, just so, she's so fearful when she probably has them all right. You're not going to get graded on this. <laughs> it's one of the proclamation. Proclamation is the third one. In the five pillars, they tell the disciples that it is their calling to participate not only in the corporate, but the personal proclamation of the gospel. They are telling them that to be a part of the church, you need to understand it is your job to find ways to support the corporate proclamation, but that you individually go out either to your family members or people you're working with or in your community and you proclaim the gospel in real ways. So it's an expectation across the board for proclamation. What else? Prayer, pleading, perseverance. Are you making a sermon back there? You've got like... <laughs> he's like, he's got a... You, are you trying to just wipe out all the answers at one time? <laughs> the P's are really easy. Prayer. Prayer is the first one. You are going to be committed to prayer. Both the corporate 
and the personal prayer for the church. And they really put that in the forefront. And if you think about how some things are actually written in the scriptures, sometimes prayer is even before the word, which is kind of odd because you need to know the word to be able to know what to pray for, but that you're that fervent involved in praying to God, to pleading out to God. And just what I just said, there's the number two. What is the number two pillar? And if you go to Acts, you can see some of these things in Acts 2. Uh, what? Now, you can't copy him. I, he said a few things, but there's, there's, a, there's a second one that, that no one's touched on yet, that I've hinted on and even mentioned, but no one said it. Being in the Word. Being in the Word. The second pillar is devotion to the Word. Again, the public proclamation, but the private study of the Word. That as the church is calling us, we are called to be in prayer, but also to be in the Word. To be a disciple of the Word. That if, to them, I mean, these people are risking their lives. And they're saying, you must be devoted to prayer. You must be devoted to God's Word. And being deep into His Word. Being disciples of His Word. That it's not just catchphrases of things that might encourage you when you're feeling down. Or just inspiration moments when you're wanting to to run that extra mile or whatever. These are actually identifiers of who you are, being devoted to the Word. Then I've already mentioned the third one is the proclamation of the Gospel. What is number four? Does anybody remember number four? It's going to probably feel more like a class today than a sermon, but it's okay. I'm good with that. Anybody remember number four? It's similar to something that Brian had said. Oh, you can't. <laughs> it, it's two, of, two P words that he used are interwoven into one with the, the fourth point, the fourth pillar. Fourth pillar. Oh, come on. I'm going to make y'all... Persecution. Perseverance through persecution. That's what I was, it was, was highlighting. He actually hit another point there by saying that, that you would embrace persecution. Is what they have they actually word it is to embrace it to not only expect persecution but to embrace persecution because if you're doing prayer and if you're doing devotion to the word and if you're doing proclamation, I can promise you another P that in real life if you are truly doing those things you're going to face at least trial, you're going to face at least temptation. In difficulty, it may not be. You may like. Well, you know, I kind of do those things, and I don't have you know any government persecution like they have in China. Well, it's, that's their context. We all have our own context in the providence of the Lord. There, if you're really doing those things, you should be seeing some pushback. There will be some pushback somewhere. Like I was telling people earlier that you know I, I posted the sermon that I did last Sunday because I felt like it was an evangelistic kind of a broader nice Christmassy sermon and it would be more accessible than sometimes some of my other sermons that I make you suffer through that I sent it out and it, I just looked a minute ago and it's got like 800 people have seen it and, and but only about I think about 40 people maybe have interacted with it and I was kind of excited as I saw those numbers increase but then all of a sudden I had this guy who was just pestering me you know, all of a sudden he was just irritating me with saying, you know, it's heresy, you're preaching heresy. Like, he wouldn't tell me what it was, but he was just scoffing at everything. That He was going through the, the whole web page or the whole um, Facebook page, and he was just making mocking symbols throughout the whole, the whole thing. And I was just like, what's up with this guy? 
kind of like, and that's just a minor scale of what you encounter. You're going to encounter trials in your family. You're going to encounter trials in the body of believers, the people who supposedly proclaim the name with you. You're going to encounter trials. I know from very beginning on that extended family have given me pushback about things. People who proclaim Jesus' name. You will see these things, and I'm sure that if you even just in a relationship circumstance try to put the gospel on the forefront of some moment of reconciliation or even in a moment of encouragement, you have likely received some kind of pushback because that's the nature of proclaiming the gospel. And then in broader terms, you see these things happen on the broad scale through government persecution and restrictions and just right out battle against the people of God. How about the last one? Does anybody remember the last pillar, the fifth pillar of the underground Chinese church? It's kind of the fun one. Is it a P word or is it? <laughs> no, it's not a P word. I don't think you can find a. There's a P in the first word. Is it Belgian? No, but it's a good one. It's, and actually, it's, I want to come to that because it's absent in the five pillars, and it, I think it could be in there because in Acts two. Fellowship and communion is definitely a component of a, what I would say is a pillar of the church, but I'll explain that in a minute. What do you expect that the fifth one might be? It's an expectation. If all these other things are happening, it's an expectation that the Chinese church has if they're doing all these other things. Being thankful? No. Miracles? Miracles. That they expect miracles to occur. Well, they're actually expecting that this is going to be fruit. Something's going to happen. They, that when, as the church are doing these particular things, that God is going to do the things that he says he's going to do. You know, it's not, this is not just a drill or a, a discipline to, to, to control yourself to do these things and then just die. God desires to work through these means. That's why he's calling his people. God has the power to just do everything that he wants to do. He created the world with his word. Just like that. In six days, the whole world was created. He, he could, and if it was his desire, and I don't know why he does it the way he does it ultimately, but I think from what I can see principally through the scriptures is that he is doing miracles in his people. This is for the purposes of changing our heart. He could pick us up and move us over here. We saw that earlier on in Acts, that he moved Philip <laughs> just like that. I mean, he has the ability to break against the very creation laws that he has. He can stop the day. He can turn off the sun. He can move people from one thing to the next. He has all that under his control. His purposes is transformation. And that we should actually expect miracles to occur. And when all things are placed at Jesus' feet, that means all things in our hearts and also the physical circumstances. And in this particular passage, you see all of those things occurring in some way. And I'm going to go through that in the next three Sundays because I'm going to stay in this section of the passage with references to other passages in the next three Sundays to highlight those particular five pillars being taught to us through the beginning of the ministry of Saul here in Damascus to encourage you, but also to equip you and that your minds would be focused as we end one year and begin the next. It is my prayer that we would adopt those pillars to be very much our own. 
I do want to make a little side note from what Adam said there. I thought, as I thought about the five pillars for the last four years, that it is missing what you see in Acts 2 concerning the fellowship and the communion and the bonding of the people, of God's people. My contention is that's already understood in the Chinese church. We have to be reminded of that because I think because we're Americans. We're individual. If you've ever eaten with a Chinese family or a group of Chinese people, their nature is very community-focused. It's kind of weird. I had a Chinese delegation that I got to take out to eat one time, and all of them just like they were picking it. The food's just all laid out. There's no individual plates. And they're picking up with their chopsticks and, oh, try this. And then they, you know, it was very, very non-COVID friendly. <laughs> you know, here, oh, you, you try this. Oh, that was good. You know, into your mouth, their mouth, and it's just, it's very much sharing. Have any of y'all ever been in a, and I don't know if, that's, if it's that way over in the in African nations, but there's other cultures. See, as Americans, we're just like, this is our food, and some of you are very OCD, and you got the food. <laughs> it's like you got everything kind of under control there. It's in a lot of other cultures. It's a lot more community based. You know what's that? Tribal. Tribal. That's right. And they're bonding to each other. Their understanding of structural authority is a lot different too. That's one thing that's as a disadvantage to the Chinese is because their culture is rightly authoritarian in many ways. They get abused by the government, by having that culture in them. And it's weird with us. We're so individualistic, and sometimes to our benefit, but I would say overall to our demise, that we have no appreciation for covenant structures. They don't have to be reminded of that as much as we do. If they have a pastor and a teacher, they, they understand, I'm going to learn from this guy, I'm going to follow this guy. Their, their honor is it's almost idolatrous of their parents when they die. They have such a high honor. There may have not have even been that much love in their family, but they will honor the role of their parents. And it's, it's, I didn't even think that it gets to the point of idolatry in some degree. So you need to understand that distinction about the Chinese church, that their idea of structure and interwovenness and community and their willingness to, to submit to each other and their willingness to share, it's already embedded in them to their benefit and to our, to our harm. So going back to this particular passage, I want to highlight the very first thing. And you have to understand that Luke is putting this, I really want it to be embedded in your mind, that this is just not just some kind of quick phrase to go through. It says, for some days Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. So we know this is right after his conversion. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying that he is the Son of God. So once he's converted, once he sees that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture, which was the only scriptures at that time, Paul knew the scriptures. He was chief, probably, in understanding the scriptures for what they, and how they were written. But he was still in the darkness of the shadows of the scriptures until the moment that he encountered Jesus on the way to Damascus. And then once he encountered Jesus, Jesus opened his eyes and brought him out of that darkness. And by the Holy Spirit, it, the light came on. And it was a bright light. He was seeing quickly 
that Jesus is the Son of God. This one that was being proclaimed by those whom he was persecuting, he is the Son of God. And this is the centerpiece of the building of the church. And we know this by the very words of Jesus Christ himself. Because Peter responded to Jesus when Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus told Peter, he says, Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but God has given that to you. By the Holy Spirit, God had given that to Peter. And he said, And upon this rock, which is not Peter himself, but that proclamation that he made, I will build my church. And here is Paul, now being taken over by the power of the Holy Spirit, being taken over by the dominion of the reign of Jesus Christ, and he is saying, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the Son of God, the term Son of God and Sons of God have a variety of different meanings. But with all certainty, all commentators and all studies of the New Testament and the Old Testament, that we know with certainty that Paul here is highlighting this very specific title, that Jesus is the Son of God. Before I go further into that, I want to just highlight one little thing here that he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Does anybody know what a synagogue is? Adam and I, with some of the other young guys, got to go to the Bible Museum. And it's kind of cool because they had a, a reconstruct of what it looked like inside of a typical synagogue. Now, synagogues came in different forms and shapes and sizes, but from based upon their research, they thought it was pretty much like what we saw there. And he talked about uh, this funny, quirky guy. He would have been very authentic. And, and it was, he was a living history kind of guy. He was dressed in the right thing, but he had this funky mask on. If he didn't have to have that funky mask on, it probably would have even given the experience even uh, more. But does anybody know, other than Adam, what the synagogues were? School in what? It was for Jewish men. Well, it wasn't just for Jewish men. Sometimes Jewish women, you had three different types of um, uses of synagogues. You sometimes, and very often, they were separated. You had men and women on different sides of the synagogue. Sometimes they were interwoven, at least according from what I've understood from studies. And then sometimes it was just for Jewish men. The interesting thing is, is that in 1995, some archaeologists and some other scholars made a proclamation. I don't know how many of them were, but it became kind of on a secular level, an accepted um, opinion that the scriptures were in error, that synagogues did not exist until after the destruction in 70 AD. So I don't know how they came up with that. They, they were having a hard time finding evidence that they could find any synagogue remnants in archaeological digs that were pre-70 AD. And it started to become a popular criticism of the scriptures that chronologically 
that the New Testament could not be accurate, that Jesus or the other disciples and the Apostle Paul were in actual synagogues doing this. Interestingly enough, in 2018, they started popping up everywhere. As they're digging here and digging there, like, whoa, this looks like a synagogue. And they look at the correspondent type items and things that are going on. This looks like a... Maybe even pre-birth of Christ synagogue. Definitely New Testament. There's actually been five that are clearly identified, and they're all over the place. I think there's one in Egypt. I think there's one somewhere on the northern part of the Mediterranean. This was the Jewish dysphoria that they were spread out. And so there were multiple synagogues being found. Now that's just a side note there. But these synagogues had a purpose. And there's an interesting providence about the synagogues. Does anybody know what happens in synagogues other than you know, men or women or separation of men and women? What goes on in a synagogue? It's, it's a mix of worship and teaching and education kind of environment. So it looks like a... Yes, you have the house of worship in there, but there's also like almost like a Bible college within within the building. What would be a modern round thing that we would see around here in these communities that would symbol that would resemble that? Churches. <laughs> they look a lot like churches. And did they do sacrifices in synagogues? No. Where do the sacrifices occur? In the temple. So the primary activity, the primary activity, and I think an extension to that were schools because you're learning, but it was prayer and word. Heavy on prayer and word. These were things that Jews were already doing at that particular time. And this is where Jesus found himself. This is where Paul immediately finds himself because there are little outposts away from the temple for God's people to come together to be devoted to prayer and word, discipleship in the word, which are schools. And these were already occurring. And they were occurring from what we can gather through historical evidence about the time that Jesus came onto the scene. There's not a lot of description biblically of the formation of synagogues. We have the tabernacle, we have the temple, and we know that there were people, there are Jews and kind of spread out here and there. But the synagogues, I see through the history of that area to be a providential bedrock for having places of the church. It's where the early churches were actually going. And, and you would, there were already people that would be ready to hear the gospel, some ready and some not to hear the gospel, being preached. That is why Paul is in a synagogue. He is in a place that is devoted to prayer and the study of God's word. Now, granted, at this time, this particular synagogue did not know Jesus. He's coming in and he says something that just explodes everything because he's saying Jesus is the Son of God, which is saying that he is deity, that he is actually the Son of God, but that he is the Christ, as it says in verse 22. He is the Messiah. They know what he's talking about, and they don't like it. And the very first thing that they say to him is, aren't you the guy? I thought you were on our side. Aren't you the champion of our cause against the Christians? 
Didn't you come here to actually bound those who proclaim the name of Jesus? Now you got to remember again what that means. To proclaim the name of Jesus is to convert to Jesus. Not just to say, oh yeah, I know who Jesus is. Is that for those who are following Jesus, although you came here to bound them. And then Paul takes all of this prep work that God has done in his own mind through his own studies and the conditions of what the people there are hearing, and he proves to them, and if you go to Acts 17, when it says that Paul is proving to them, he is using the scriptures to prove to them the very things that they are devoted to, that Jesus is the Christ. They're confounded by it. They are unnerved by it. I love that word confounded. The only time I ever hear that is in a very southern context. You know, I don't hear people using confounded in a very... Uh, like, confounded! <laughs> Have you ever heard anybody say it that way? I mean, that's, that's the only place I ever heard it. I, I, but it comes from this confusion and frustrated response that he's proving that Jesus is the Christ through the scriptures, to the thing that they're devoted to. And after that soaks in for a few days, they realize they've lost their champion. They've lost the strong arm of the guy who gets things done on pushing down the Christians. And they realize there's no hope. We're going to have to kill him. This is not good. He is equipped and capable of messing everything up and getting people to follow him, and we're going to kill him. And we see that he foils that, and it's interesting that his disciples assist him in his escape. They've got all of the gates and the accesses to the town blocked. And if you've ever seen one of these kind of cities, the, 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 the walls of the, of the town are also the walls of the houses. And you, it's, it's a way to protect their community. And so they have all the entrances and exits out of the, the community. They've got them blocked. And so what they do is they let him out through the wall. And there's a lot of imagery here that you see that goes throughout God's working with his people through the Old Testament. You could think of David and Michael when Saul is after David. You can think of Paul. He's in a, I mean, not Paul, Moses. <laughs> He's in a basket. You can think of Jesus himself, which is what the sermon, if you look at my notes in the order of worship, I've actually referenced Luke 4, and I was going to preach on that, and I changed gears, that Jesus himself is, Paul is following, and I think Luke is doing this, because Luke wrote Luke 4, and I think he's doing the exact thing here in Acts, the format of what happened when Jesus first went to the synagogues at home, doing the same thing. Jesus goes in, and he says, I'm the son of God, basically, they say, whoa, weren't you this? And then the next thing he's like, you know what, we're just going to kill him. And then he gets through it. Same format. And it's a, it's a model that is used throughout all of Scripture. And I want to end my sermon with going to Luke chapter 1. We turn to Luke chapter 1. And before I read it, again, I knew this was going to be more like a class than anything. Of all the narrative of the nativity of the birth of Jesus Christ, you can think of all of the stuff that's going on. Just imagine a nativity scene. (laughs) And everything that we see that goes in the component in it. 
What is the most significant, necessary component of the nativity event? That without this occurring in the nativity narrative, there wouldn't be any salvation. Did I question that right? <laughs> the incarnation? The incarnation is, is, is definitely a component of it, the main component of it. But I'm talking about, like, if, you, if you're looking at, if you're, if you're going to a Christmas play, and you're listening to all the narrative, and there's a particular thing that's being said, and a particular, a particular event. Now, remember the fifth pillar <laughs> of, of the Chinese church. What is the primary necessity to occur here? That without this one thing, and, I, and it's probably a vague question, and I may not be. I would say the soldiers. The, the soldiers? Yeah, yeah. What about the soldiers? Well, it was... In the nativity scene? Well, you sure that's not some soldiers that William put into your nativity scene? <laughs> I don't remember any soldiers in <laughs> Explain. I'm sorry. Well, you see the, the war going on. Okay. Uh, the broader uh, governmental... Uh, okay. Okay. That's, that's, I, it, it is part of it. But it's not the centerpiece. I mean, if you didn't have the war, you could still have the nativity scene. Um, and it wouldn't change our salvation. I want to push this. Are, are you talking about, this kind of goes with the incarnation thing, but that Jesus was born a virgin? Good job, Adam. We said it in our confession today, that Jesus was born of a virgin. And we get really kind of comfortable with that. It's just something like, yeah, Jesus was born of a virgin. And we know there's been debate about that here and there. And we know that the Presbyterian Church in 1973 didn't require that of their pastors, that they, they would, didn't have to believe in the virgin birth. Mainline. Mainline Presbyterian Church. Well, it was the only Presbyterian church at that time, and then that's what caused all the splits. But turn to Luke chapter 1. The centerpiece requirement of this story to work is this particular part of the narrative of the nativity. Now, you could say there's a lot of things, and there's... You know, being in the line of David, that's necessary too. I mean, but this is the miraculous centerpiece of it all. And it is what Paul begins his ministry proclamation with. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the incarnate God in flesh. And what is said here in this discussion between the angel Gabriel and Mary is the centerpiece of the nativity scene. And I want that to be embedded in your mind as you go throughout the rest of your Christmas celebration. And I want you to connect it to what Paul is saying here in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, this is in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and this is the, the pop verse here, 
he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, whom was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The same structure here. Maybe I think I'm having to add a lot of imagination and maybe stretching it a bit is being done here. And I appreciate what David had to say about the, the, the turbulent government situation that was around them. The context that you always see with the furthering of the gospel, whether it's all the way back in the garden and going through all the patriarchs of the Old Testament, or whether it's in this particular part of the gospel or going into the early church and the epistles, is that there's turbulence. There's personal turbulence, and there's typically outward turbulence going on in the context of these particular stories. And there is a proclamation of something found in God's word, how God is going to bring about the redemption of his people. And for that to occur, there is going to be some kind of astounding proclamation of how it's going to happen. And it's going to confound people or confuse people or cause people to question. You see it. Whether it's Abraham, you're going to have a son. You know, or you're going to be able to take over these armies that are way over in number than you. And God's people are left with, how is this possible? Now, there's two different types of directions to go from that point. There's a question, how, God? How is this possible? And then there are some who follow in faith, and then there are some who don't follow in faith. And there are some that are kind of in the middle. I guess there is a a tertium quid. There are some who are a little bit more questionable, but God corrects them, but he brings them back into faith. And you see it in the birth narrative of Jesus. You see two different contrasts here, because you also have Zechariah, who's been told of the same events, but mainly through John, that John's going to be one preparing the way. And he questions God, because he's he's an old man, and he's like, how is this possible? And then he loses his voice for a while. Then God brings them back in and lets him proclaim. He's a priest and he's able to proclaim what's going to happen. Here, Mary, and it, it sounds almost like it's unfair, because Mary's doing the same thing. How is this possible? I mean, I am a virgin. I would know. <laughs> I have not been with man. How are you going to accomplish this in me? And the angel says, God is going to accomplish this. Man is not going to accomplish this. Now, you have to understand that on a personal level, this is 
creating quite a trial for Joseph and Mary. And in both situations, the angel is prepping them for it by saying, do not be afraid. He's telling Joseph, do not be afraid to continue on in this path. It's going to be difficult, but continue to take this woman as your wife, even though there's likely going to be some scorn because there's a scandal here. She's pregnant and you didn't do it. And he doesn't take her as his wife until after Jesus is born. Mary is going to have to deal with the whole reputation of being pregnant, and she's not been with Joseph. And this is going to be a challenging thing for her, but the angel is telling her, do not be afraid, continue to follow on. That a miracle is going to be performed. You are going to face difficulty. You should just embrace the difficulty, but believe that there will be miraculous things occurring, that God's word will be fulfilled. And her response is a response that is a lesson for the Christian of all ages. Let it be unto me according to your word. I am your servant. Do unto me as you wish. I am your servant. Let it be that your word would be accomplished in and through me. And those are the same components of all the things that we see of how we should approach this thing. But the thing that we need to understand, which was going to be the primary thing, but my wife taught me out of it, is you need to let Jesus crash your Christmas party. Last week I was talking about how God has called people to a Christmas party and how he's making the greatest Christmas party. And it was encouraging for us to hear that we are invited to his party. But you need to let Jesus crash your party because I believe that even though this is a wonderful time of the year, this is a time of the year of tremendous turmoil for us. We have so many expectations. We have so many activities. We have so much money going to certain things. There's so much at stake. And that's on a good side. On the other side, there are so many memories that are being brought to people's mind. So many people being depressed. So many people suffering. So many people are alone. Because they've been told by the world what Christmas should look like. And they're being told you should be happy. You should be giving lots of gifts. You should be having a party. And some people, whether they're with people or not, they are very, very alone. And it's, everything is accentuated during this time. To a high degree, everything that we work for in a year is like coming to a head. And it's so fragile. And people can break just like that. And we need Jesus to come in and to break our party, to be reminded that if we are those who are devoted to God in prayer, that if we are those who are devoted to his word, who are hoping in his word, and if we are those who are wanting to see the proclamation of the gospel proclaimed, That we should expect persecution. We should expect difficulty. We want to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, and we want it to be a big party. We want it to be really exciting, but there's a problem. We're still at war. We're at war within ourselves. 
with our own personal expectations and challenges. We are at war as a family. We're at war as a church. We are at war definitely as a nation. As there are truly beginnings to be more and more persecution on our own nation. Nothing like what they experienced in China, but very similar (laughs) getting to that point. And we should expect that to be the case. And we should look forward to it in some ways because every place where God has furthered his word, that has occurred. But we should also, as we are devoted to this, expect miracles to happen. I'm not asking you to expect something like the virgin birth. I'm actually asking you to expect something maybe even more great. The transformation of hearts. The transformation of his people. People beginning to see that they are actually a part of the party of Jesus Christ. We want Jesus to come in and destroy our idols. It was good for Paul to show up in that synagogue and shake up their idols. They had taken God's word, a place of prayer and devotion to God for God's people, and they had made it into a byword into an idolatrous place of worship. And he came in and gave the greatest grace of them that they could possibly have and said, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came into their party and crashed their party. Now, Paul was able to escape that moment and continue on. You see the miracle occurring there. He was able to get out of the city. You see miracles occurring wherever there is in Scripture of God continuing on with his word. But the biggest miracle that I think you see there is that his disciples. Where did those disciples come from? These are people that are obviously agreeing with Paul or they're in the transition of that. They're helping him escape. That party got crashed, and now there are people who are following after Jesus. Getting through a wall is nothing. God could have just zapped Paul over to the other side of the wall. That's not a big deal. Changing hearts is the big deal. Where else in Scripture do you see the phrase that Gabriel gives to Mary? When Mary says, how is this possible? I'm a virgin. And he says, for nothing is impossible with God. Where do you see that happen again in the Gospels? When they were talking about the rich man. The rich young ruler. And Jesus is showing by the rich young ruler, basically highlighting that the rich young ruler is in deception, thinking that he has obeyed all the law, and that he is going to be able to obey all of the law and be able to make it into the kingdom of God by obeying all the law, because we see right up front that he's not obeying all of the law. Jesus exposes that to the rich young ruler. And the disciples are observing what Jesus is doing, and Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go in through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man like this, one who is holding on to worldly idols, to go into the kingdom of God. And the disciples are getting the point. They're like, if he can't get in with all that he's doing and all that he has, he is the highlight of highlights. He's rich, he's vibrant and young, and he has authority and power and influence, and he can't get into the kingdom of God, then how can any of us get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, 
With man, this is not possible. But with God, it's possible. It is not possible for those in that synagogue to come to Jesus Christ, even by the great ability of Saul. It is by the Holy Spirit and Jesus crashing the party. As you go into your Christmas season, invite Jesus. Expect that you will have strife. You will have disagreements. You will have battles inside of you, whether it's loneliness or whether it's something to do with gifts or something to do with getting a party together. I mean, you throw in stomach bug in our house right now, we would just be a fit to be tied. Why, we're sick. This is Christmas. God, what are you doing to us? (laughs) But if we prayerfully... Go to God's word and remember how he works and remember the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I mean, I I skipped over it, but I read it. That phrase, he will be great and he'll be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Do you get that? He's saying what seems to be two different things. Jesus is the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God, but he is going to give him the throne of his... Father David, he's the son of David. How is this possible? That is the Christmas miracle that God became flesh through a virgin, something that is not possible by us, and transformed the world from death unto life. And we too are called by the principles of his scripture To be devoted to that same type of word, to say, Lord, here am I, your servant. Do unto us, destroy our Christmas plans. If having the stomach bug in our house will bring us closer to you, then do it. Jennifer's scared to death now. If all of your gifts get destroyed, Or your family doesn't like your gifts. (laughs) Do unto my expectations as you wish. I am your servant. Let your word be done. May it be that your gospel will be proclaimed in all of our celebrations this day. If our work plans, if our relationship plans. We have so many expectations. Are we willing to put those things at the feet of Jesus? Or will we hold on to them tight? When we sit and ponder it a few days, and when we respond like those in the synagogue that said, we ain't having it. Will you be Mary, a virgin teenage girl who is hoping in the word of God? Or will you be those who are supposed to be teachers of the law And we'll say, we need to do to Paul the same thing we did to Jesus. We ain't having it. May it be that Jesus would crash your Christmas party and it would be the best thing that ever happened. It would be the best Christmas you ever had. Let's pray.